Okay. Um, you okay to start? I'll start with a little introduction. Definitely. Go for it. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited to be speaking with Dr. Paul Freikers today. He has a master's in econometrics, a PhD obtained studying well-being, and is currently a visiting professor in well-being economics at the London School of Economics. Paul has co-authored around 150 papers, six books he has written, and is in the one is in the top one percent cited economists. Lately, has he has co-authored The Great COVID Panic what happened, why, and what to do next. So without further ado, welcome Paul, and thanks for taking the time for, to speak with me today. It's great to see you, Brandon Paradoski. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You got it, you got it. So I have a science background. I'm not very well-versed in well-being. Um, so what is the study of well-being and how does this relate to your analysis of the COVID response? Um, the study of well-being is largely the study of what people themselves find important about their life. So it's the question uh, of, of sort of on reflection, how do you think you're going in your life? And there are various ways that we can measure that, but we by and large nowadays rely on asking people themselves. Uh, in previous times, we sort of had an expert view on this in which we presumed to know what was important for you, but for the last... 30 to 50 years, we've veered more and more towards measures of well-being uh, in which what people themselves think about their lives is the paramount thing. So we measure that, uh, and we know an awful lot about that. We have studied that for almost 90 years now. Social scientists, economists, and econometricians are Jenny Com lately is in that. So we started out with psychologists and sociologists. Comfil was one of the early ones, but also the Likert scales of the 1930s. Um, and so we've got a pretty good idea as to what actually matters to people on reflection. Right? In the short run, people can always be seduced by all kinds of emotional stories and nonsense. But in the long run, when they reflect on their life and when they think, well, what do I want for my children, for my grandchildren, they've got a reasonable idea as to what they find important. And the key things they find important is warm social relationships, they like their own status as well. Uh, and of course, health and mental health matter a lot. Um, and what does this have to do with the lockdowns? Well, very early on, even before the lockdowns, um, well-being economists who are used to calculating how important various uh, outcomes are for people were sort of looking with horror at the coming lockdowns and realizing that they were going to destroy exactly the thing that is most precious to people, namely these close social relationships, their sense of feeling worth something because of a job, uh, but also just their social relations if they're stuck in nursing homes or in schools. And so we knew this was going to impact on exactly the things that were most important to people. And a very quick back of the envelope calculation already revealed that that loss was going to be a whole order bigger than any possible or realistic benefit of these lockdowns. And so we knew a disaster was in the making. Simple as that. So what tipped you off that something was wrong? Or did you just know right from the get-go um, this is gonna cause so much collateral damage that there's just no way of shutting things down is gonna outweigh this. Uh, I knew right from the get-go. So I wrote pieces about this mid-March 2020, even before the lockdowns were actually instigated. Uh, but I had a head start uh, because I, I sort of wrote about well-being cost-benefit analysis for five years before then. I'd helped the British government uh, perfect its methodology but previously, I'd also worked quite a bit on transitions, including the transition from the Soviet system to a more capitalist system. 
And I'd done a lot of studying on group behavior and of sort of, you know, historical instances of madness, you might say. So in a way, I, I was ready for this pandemic, which is probably also why I was one of the few economists who spoke out, because it so perfectly fit what I did before. So the circumstances selected me. Uh, so yes, it, it was basically obvious at the outset um, that, oh no, there's going to be a mountain of hurt and at best a mole's heap of benefit. And when it came to the benefit, I have another advantage. I've just been before my five years at the LSE, 10 years a professor of health economics in Brisbane. And so I knew the kind of models that were used and I knew how to read mortality statistics and that sort of thing. So speaking on that, um, what type of metrics do you use? How do we quantify um, whether there could potentially be some benefit? So say in the future, there could be maybe a 20% mortality rate virus, then you could maybe start to argue, okay, maybe shutting some more things down might, might be mm -hmm. beneficial. But how do you quantify um, whether the benefits outweigh the costs, essentially? Well, the, the quantification always recognizes that everybody in the end dies. So anybody who says, oh, you know, we, pre we prevented deaths is not quite speaking truth. They postpone deaths. We all die. And so the metric that everybody uses who tries to do this in a rational way is some notion of years of life. And then the key thing is the quality waiting on years of life. Uh, because, of course, somebody who's in terrible agony, whose life is not worth living, well, a year further of that kind of living is not the same as a year in the bloom of your life and having a great time. And people themselves would want the great time rather than the agony, and they'd be willing to trade off quite a few years of agony for a year in bloom. So uh, the quality weighting matters, and different groups of scientists and social scientists have taken different types of quality weight. So the old approach has been the quality approach, by which you effectively ask people how their physical health is going. We know a lot about that, but we also know that people care about more things than just their physical health. They care how their loved ones are doing, they care about their mental health, they care about feeling worthwhile, and they care an awful lot about their social circumstances. Uh, and we measure that by asking them. So the favorite question we have is called the life satisfaction question. So we'd ask you, Brendan, all things considered in your life, how satisfied are you with life as a whole these days? And a zero would be completely unsatisfied and a 10 would be completely. And then we space that zero to 10 into 10 increments of one. And for one year, one person, one such unit, we call a Welby. Um, we know an awful lot about what moves that Welby up and down, uh, but that allows us to trade off the quality of life with the length of life. So uh, as an example, we know that uh, in the year of marriage, you're quite a bit happier. Your life satisfaction is maybe half a point, a point higher. We also know there's anticipation a year before that. It only goes slowly down. So roughly speaking, we can say uh, a marriage is worth one well-be. Um, because we know that uh, people who are very healthy are about an eight, people who are indifferent between their life and death are about a two. So we know that a year of life is worth about six well-be. And so a marriage is one-sixth of a year of life is about two months. So if people on reflection would say, well, would I have wanted the marriage experience to find somebody with whom I marry, marry, and then sort of get used to it, then they'd be willing to trade that off for two months in their life, if not more. So that's roughly how we do it. Right? We, we know an awful lot about what moves the quality of life. We also know a lot about what moves life expectancy. 
uh, and that allows us for many different policies and many different circumstances to have some sort of ballpark notion as to what's important and what the key trade-offs are. So using these metrics, what was the cost of lockdowns? And has anyone proposed um, an alternate calculation, I guess, to what you've presented? Uh, yes. So um, there are various estimates of the cost of lockdowns. There is actually a well-be estimate of the cost of lockdowns worldwide. Um, that's been produced by a Spanish scholar based on my methodology. Um, but you should think that the cost of lockdowns are at least 50 times higher than the benefits. And that is in a very rosy picture what the benefits are, with more and more emerging information to clear that there are basically no significant benefits. Uh, we used to give the lockdowns the benefit of the doubt for that, well, that will slow something or improve COVID outcomes. But it's now clear by looking across regions, even within large countries, those regions which had stronger or less strong lockdowns, that there was either no difference or you even get worse COVID outcomes by all the lockdowns and restrictions because you make people less healthy if you time down. Um, but also you make the health system less productive by all these lockdown measures. You reduce the number of beds, make everything more difficult. So there's less productivity within the health system. And that also can increase more COVID problems. And uh, we can also have a long conversation about the vaccines and such things. Um, so effectively, there are no benefits. They're just huge costs. Uh, and yes, we have calculated that the world as a whole has already lost something like the equivalent of 30 million full lives, right? We, we are really in a in sort of an extraordinary situation where in terms of cost, we're thinking of this as equivalent uh, to events like the First and Second World War now. That's now the, the ballpark figure in in terms of cost. I think even early on, there was that meta-analysis out of Johns Hopkins that essentially said the benefit of locking down on mortality was something at max like 0.2% to almost nothing and then weighing all the other factors um the psychology the development of children health etc cetera, etc cetera, just completely weigh outweighed any benefit we would have obtained from these lockdowns um so in my mind at least it should have been at least a round table discussion or some sort of um some sort of committee that we could pull on like scientists to bring this in economists, et cetera, well-being. But to your knowledge, has there been anything of that sort? There has been, but it was roundly ignored. So to come back to your previous questions of other people use other metrics, yes, they have. So within the UK, which does a lot of cost-benefit analysis on this sort of thing, there was a group of actuaries within the government who did this, and they said, oh, my God, this is going to lose 200,000 lives. Uh, and there are also external health economists who were calculating cost-benefit analysis and uh, a group at Imperial College, yes, the same university from which the infamous uh, Neil Ferguson models came, uh, said that there was a, a cost-to-benefit ratio of 50 to 1. And that was, I believe, sort of April, May 2020. So they came very quickly as well. In the Netherlands, the Ministry of Economic Affairs brought out uh, internally a cost-benefit analysis saying, well, it's going to cost at least three times uh, what it could gain, and that was a two weeks lockdown. Um, and so, yeah, no, this was done within various bureaucracies, but the political imperative was so overwhelming to do lockdowns and to pretend that they were sensible, that they effectively totally steamrolled at the science. 
So the, the science of the preceding 50 to 100 years, right up until February 2020, was that one should not do lockdowns. This was not in the blueprints. It was against WHO advice, just brought out in 2019. And so it, it went against all public health thinking, knowledge of 50 to 100 years. It was deeply unscientific. Uh, and it wasn't based on a randomized experiment. It wasn't based on evidence medicine at all. Uh, this was madness. You know, it was blind panic, and then very quickly it, it became uh, opportunistic money seeking and power seeking. I'm afraid. Um, so yes, it, these committees did happen here and then, and then they were widely ignored. It was hard to find. Freedom of information requests had to dig them up. Uh, the evidence was buried, as was, as it were, a scientific consensus of 50 years embedded in textbooks and all kinds of blueprints. So it was it was an amazing reversal of scientific thinking. And then this, this was brought up with a source of, oh, you should follow the science. Well, you should follow anti-science would be the, the more accurate description. That had nothing to do with science. Yeah, it's very strange because at the same time, at least in Canada, it would be, okay, well, let's lock down. But then people would be right away to go to a sporting event or like go to Walmart or Costco. And it, it really just doesn't make any sense because there would still be transmission in those places and it, it, eventually it's going to spread or people hanging mm. out in the underground, like it, I don't know. It, it yeah, and, and not just that, even if people would, you know, 100% keep to the, to the letter and spirit of the lockdown, they're nonsensical. For the simple reason that lots of things have to keep on going. You know, people have to go to the power plants, they have to go to the waterworks, there has to be a police, there have to be people at hospitals. And of course, people get ill, so they have to go to the hospital to exactly the wrong place to be because then you're mixed with exactly the wrong people. Uh, shops have to be supplied. People have to get those supplies. I mean, just too much needs to get running. So you're going to have marginal effects even on the interaction. And if you think of the interactions you still have, they're then the wrong ones. And of course, you're continuously weakening people. Put them at home, stop them interacting, and you make them unhealthy. You, you are destroying their immune system. Uh, via not having these social contacts, which is very, very bad for people's health, uh, which is going to make them more and more susceptible. But you're also preventing, of course, people interacting with each other and exchanging all kinds of mild forms of, of pathogens. Uh, and that weakens their immune system as well. So on all sides, this made no sense whatsoever. Uh, there was nothing scientific about this. You, you should really see this as a kind of mass sacrificial event that should make you think of, you know, the Greeks sacrificing daughters and sons for the gods for a favorable wind. I mean, it's, it's exactly analogous to that. And then, you know, it, it was overlain with the source of we're following the science. Well, <laughs> my God, <laughs> think about wrong speak. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, so people on, on the opposite side who would refute us would say, well, what about the hospitals? The hospitals are overrun, but the hospitals were always overrun and there was no attempt to set up any field hospitals, build up alternative hospitals or locations. So it was just sort of lockdown and whatever happens, happens almost. Yes. And, and I, I would say two more things about that kind of reaction, which of course I've gotten as well. But one is the question of who has the burden of proof. And it's a well-accepted principle in our legal system and public system that the person who wants to do something draconian has to come up with a proof as to why that's necessary. So the burden of proof is on the other side. And there are no randomized control trials of these lockdowns, these masks, to, to any sort of you know, reasonable degree. 
uh, and also these other measures. You know, they, they basically came directly out of the farm uh, and they have a, a sacrificial component, but not a scientific component that is needed to sort of justify them. So one is this, this reversal of proof, you know, prove to me that the lockdowns are not useful has been the, the battle cry. Well, that's, that's what people in power then do after they've committed a huge crime, right? They sort of prove to me I'm not a criminal, that kind of thing, whilst they're still in charge and inflicting grievous wounds. Um, but there's a, there's a second thing to, to say about this, right? Which is that you can go on infinitely by asking questions. Oh, what about this? What about that? What about long COVID? Da, 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 da. And, and these all go away from the central point of responsibility. You know, they have caused huge harm. They should justify themselves. And in a way, they're running away from their culpability by just throwing more questions in their wake, you know, for others then to answer. No, no, they've done the harm. They have to answer. So just, just as an example from Canada, when the lockdowns first started, um, Justin Trudeau came out with this thing called the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit Program, or CERB. And essentially what it was, was giving anyone 2000 a month to just sit at home, no matter how much you previously made, he was just mm -hmm. handing out money and it was, it was a joke and everyone took it. So now um, down the road, we obviously have consequences of that. We have um, high food prices, gases through the roof. Um, it's insane. So there's inflation. So what, can we get out of this? Is there any way we can turn the course or is it just um, a ticking time bomb of an economic crisis? Well, I mean, in a way we are now seeing um, become real what the discerning economists knew immediately in April, 2020, which is that the, the measures greatly reduced our productivity. Essentially, much less stuff was being produced, but more money to buy the same stuff was being printed. And for a short while, you can lull people into thinking that's okay because they don't notice it. They, they see a huge bank account. They can't spend them on anything because they're indoors. Uh, but meanwhile, lots less production is taking place. And so in a way, you are quickly impoverishing in you know, April, May, 2020. It's not yet visible to people. You know, they're at home, they're not traveling, they're not buying lots of new cars or other stuff. They, they sort of think they're still rich, whereas in fact, their wealth has just taken a huge knock. It's not yet visible. To them. And so what we're seeing now is that that shock is becoming visible and it becomes visible via inflation. It becomes visible, as you say, by people not being able to afford things that they previously were able to afford. But that is just another way of saying, oh, our productivity has been low these years and still very low because of all the supply disruptions and all the disruptions to normally economic functioning. And of course, the productivity of people because they become unhealthier and they become, become used to very unproductive work habits like working from home. So in a way, all that's happening in these months is that we're getting to see the consequences of the actions of 2020 and 2021. Um, and unfortunately, the Western politicians and also those in other countries have become so enamored with the additional power that they've had that instead of owning up to the mistakes and undoing them, they sort of bury their heads in the sand, pretend that it wasn't a mistake, um, and are sort of making mistake upon mistake, uh, basically aggravating everyone. Right? So we're not out of the woods at all yet. I mean, we, we, we now see farms being closed in the Netherlands supposedly uh, because of nitrogen right in the middle of a famine. 
uh, we see civil wars erupting all over the planet in poor countries. Um, we see supply disruptions still happening everywhere. We see fake public inquiries in which there's a whitewash. We see that the bloat of health services, lots of managers instead of doctors and nurses, uh, are only bloating further. So it, in a way, the, the madness stampedes on, uh, and that'll, that'll keep showing up in terms of impoverishment. So yeah, we're, we're, now getting, we're, we're now getting part of the bill, but we're still creating a bigger and bigger bill. And I'd like to say, stop stampeding, stop doing damage to our economy our, and our health. But I'm afraid, you know, the political imperative is to pretend at all costs that mistakes were not made. And well, if you pretend at all costs that you haven't been stupid in the past, you're going to be stupid in the future. So do you think um, fiat currency, at least, can survive this? Because we've just been printing money. And then some people say, okay, well, digital currency, but that's never going to work because how, how is taxation going to work? <laughs> the government is going to want to set up their own digital currency in some form. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, look, fiat currency will lose a lot of its trust in the short run, but in the long run, I don't think that either commodity-backed currencies or like the gold standards or things like Bitcoin have any chance against fiat currency. So um, a fiat currency in the long run, even if it's central bank digital currencies, is I think the only way to go in terms of the big money um, being used. Um, and so, yeah. You know, Bitcoin in that sense, that those kind of things are effectively a form of gambling and a stupidity tax. People who make money on that are the people who, who sort of organize the trades. So, you know, and then and then people think of themselves, oh, this is going to be used in the economy, and there's hardly any use. It's it's basically people gambling. Um, but it's like a casino. You can be an individual lucky gambler, but it's really the casino that wins. And so the people who organize those trades. And so yeah, uh, you know, the, I. I so the short of that is fiat currency uh, will be fine in the long run, but it will take a huge knock in the short run, uh, but it will not be replaced by uh, crypto or any other private form of money. The, the name of the game will remain government money. Can you see um, if inflation actually does surge pretty high, can you see actual goods becoming sort of the trading piece? Like, oh, I have eggs. What do you need? That type of thing. Mm -hmm. Could you see that transpiring or is that just so out of date that you could never see that occurring. Look, it's, it's, it's always possible if you sort of, you know, force hyperinflation upon the population by printing uh, quicker and quicker and quicker. But that kind of barter economy in which people directly trade services and goods with each other is spectacularly inefficient. There's a reason we use money. Uh, it's just much quicker and much more efficient. So uh, we know this from Russia. Russia in the 1990s descended into hyperinflation. Lots of people started to barter with each other. And that was part of an economic collapse in which the economy shrunk to well under half what it previously was. There was sort of huge amounts of starvation, suicides, uh, mass unhappiness, and millions of people migrating elsewhere. So that's rather a painful experience. Um, but yeah, that. that can be repeated. We are seeing increased levels of homelessness, and we are particularly in the in the developing world, so in the poor parts of the world, we're seeing a lot of starvation, a lot of extreme poverty, because of course they copy the policies of the West. Uh, you know, sent kids home who now don't have a future anymore, uh, and destroyed large parts of their economy. Um, 
And yeah, the politicians found that kept them in power, so they want to keep that going. But meanwhile, populations are starving and are, uh, yeah, getting closer and closer to revolts in any place. Okay, so let's, let's shift a little bit of gears here a bit. I know I want to get into the medical ethics, the juicy part a bit um, from our email exchange. So just to preface this, um, so we have this novel injection, call it a vaccine, but I think that's a little bit inappropriate positive connotation to it. Um, rolls out very quickly. Um, we quickly find out it's not stopping infection or transmission. No matter how many doses you have, you can still give it to someone else. And that's pretty clear. Um, but mandates still go on past that. So in my mind, at least, um, it should be wh whether it does prevent severe disease or not, it's your, it's your choice at that point because you're not affecting anyone else because everyone can spread it. Um, but now skipping forward, it seems like that may not even be the case either. Um, we have uh, a lawsuit against Pfizer for potential clinical trial fraud, um, all these adverse events coming out in VAERS, more adverse events to this vaccine than all other vaccines combined since 1990. Um, so just a whole load of things going on surrounding these vaccines or injections, whatever you want to call them. How, how did we get here? How did we go from respecting patient autonomy and sort of, I guess, um, this woke sort of thinking where everyone can kind of do what they want to do, but now in this case, you need to be injected, like you need to take this or you're a bad person. How, how did this come out of the blue? Um. I'm an economist, so the first question I ask on such things is who's making money? And you just mentioned the company that's made the most money out of this, Pfizer. Uh, but of course, there's also a huge group of other companies which have made money out of this. People who develop vaccines, um, also the people who store it. Uh, there's a huge organization to sort of you know, put it into people and put it into kids. Um, and so there's now a whole industry making money out of this. And you'll excuse me for being an economist. Uh, I would say the number one reason we have this is because they're making money out of it and they want the gravy train to keep on rolling. So, you know, they'll be the ones funding the propaganda uh, in various ways and pushing this off the political agenda to keep that, to keep that going. Um, now, how did we get here in a, in a more wider sense? Uh, well, we, we got here in a more wider sense because humanity, went mad. You know, we, we as a species basically stampeded uh, as a result of what was a very small risk, a highly concentrated risk in terms of who it affected and who it didn't affect. And then via a combination of propaganda, misleading, uh, media trying to get easy clicks, um, people not being well informed, um, and lots of people collaborating, there was a mass stampede into, into sort of the wild unknown. And in that mass stampede, you know, vaccines appeared as sort of, you know, the, the final victory, uh, which of course turned illusory. As you said, by mid last year, we actually knew that, yes, you were just as likely to transmit this thing with or without these gene therapy injections. And, um, and that basically blew away any case for mandation. But of course, for governments, mandated vaccines are a great control mechanism because you can then ask passports, people have to register somewhere, you can link that to other stuff. 
And so they didn't want to let go of that either. So they were the second group that benefited for, from this, namely gave you a, an instrument for mass surveillance and for taking away people's rights to travel and do other things to them. So you could instigate mass compliance. And mass compliance was something that the herd got out of it. They liked the idea that everybody was forced to would go along with their madness. So that's the trifecta, right? Money in terms of the, the people making the stuff, distributing it, uh, power, uh, also the power control over populations by the politicians, and herds who like the idea of forcing everybody who's slightly outside the herd into the herd. So backing it up a little bit, um, we talked about there wasn't really a committee, or at least there were committees, but they were largely ignored for the lockdowns. Um, there were scientists who were saying the opposite, but were sort of dissenters and silenced and suppressed. Um, to me, that doesn't seem like that's someone who's incompetent. It seems like to me that someone who just doesn't want to hear an alternate opinion or they have an agenda set, at least, that you don't want to allow people to see this opinion or have this information presented to them through social media, through the media, like mainstream news, et cetera. Um, and so just to give some examples, I know of people my age who now have myocarditis and heart problems. I've never heard of that previously until now. I've never seen soccer players just drop on the field of heart problems until now. I've never heard of sudden adult death syndrome until now. And it's just, it's so out of touch with reality how that is just being swept under the rug that it really doesn't make any sense to me. And now I'm starting to see more people are okay with talking about these issues. And um, more and more people are saying, well, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have took this injection, which is sad, but I think a lot of information was suppressed. And so my question is, is, is this violating um, traditional, well, I think it is medical ethics, but is this getting into the realm of the Nuremberg Code? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it definitely is getting into the realm of the Nuremberg Code, but a lot of the measures, uh, in my opinion, have violated the Nuremberg Code, including lockdowns themselves, because one of the key demands in the Nuremberg Code is that if you're going to do experiments, and lockdowns are an experiment. They're not a proven thing, but they're an experiment, and they're an experiment in public health, um, that you must have reasonable evidence that the cure is not worse than the disease. Uh, and of course, there was reasonable evidence that the cure was way worse than the disease. Uh, and so to not even look for that kind of cost-benefit analysis, or at least um, sort of you know, a, a, a real look as to, well, what are we destroying via these lockdowns? Right? Uh, without that, you are violating the Nuremberg Codes, uh, and hence also the public health codes. And of course, you are ignoring 50 to 100 years of medical thinking. So uh, all the consequences of what should come to politicians and these kind of health advisors in the state institutions um, enacting and advising pro-breaking the Nuremberg Code should now come to pass. I mean, this is what they have done. Uh, and I've said so in my book, The Great COVID Panic. And of course, that creates a different dynamic as well. Right? If you now have a class of people who pushed for things that, uh, that, as it were, some observers, including myself, have said, now, look, that is, you know, uh, in our opinion, 
criminal and it violates the Nuremberg Code and there should be justice over this. Well, then their only real choice is a flight forward, is, you know, doubling down. And so that gets us to the current day in which basically any distraction is fair go, uh, any other problem is fair go to push the population towards, to prevent them at all costs from gelling on a story that they've done some wrong, because then, of course, the crowd may turn on them and go after them. And so that's the situation we now find ourselves in. Uh, that's, that's 2022. So just an example of that, um, one of the public health officers in Canada out of BC actually had a bunch of her emails leaked recently. And it, it showed that she was aware of all these serious adverse events going on early in 2021, but still went ahead with the safe and effective dogma almost at this point. Um, so I think something like that, I don't know if you can turn around and admit wrongdoing to that because what is the, what is the punishment? You've, you've forced this on so many people. I, I don't know if there is a fair punishment for anyone to do that unless they truly are incompetent, but I don't even know if that's a fair excuse in this scenario. Um, but so speaking on this, do you think the medical system that we have now, at least the Western medical system, can it be trusted again after this? I mean, some people are not even aware of anything we're talking about, but for the few who do see it, I, can that trust be rebuilt or is there going to be a new sort of system or place to go? Um, well, those are several different questions, right? but there's no doubt that trust in public health systems taken a severe knock almost throughout the West, with few exceptions, but there are exceptions. Um, can trust be rebuilt? Yes. History shows that people have a very short memory for this sort of stuff and will we'll start to retrust authorities pretty quickly, particularly if there's another emergency of some other kind, they will quickly forget the previous emergency or any wrongdoing. So yes, that will. Uh, should there be huge reforms? Yes, definitely. Um, and some would sort of speed up uh, the improvement in trust. Right? Um, and so that brings us to the question of really what the favored reforms are. Um, and I think the favored reforms by politicians is no reforms whatsoever. They would like to pretend this is all done well. And so Part of that pretense is to have pandemics all year round of different stuff, to have you shot at by all kinds of things all the time, just to prove that the previous gene therapies were the right thing to do, uh, and to sort of lock you up if you dare say that that is not useful. I think that that is the, the current fantasy land in which the Canadian politicians live, uh, but they're not the only ones. Um, now, if we'd sort of take a more benevolent view of what, what I think, you know, from a, a sort of a public health or public well-being perspective should be done to our health system, but more widely, sort of the administrative system of states, the, the institutions of states, then I have many ideas. Um, and one of my favorite ideas is that those institutions should start to be uh, led by people much more directly appointed by the population than at current, where all the key appointments are made by politicians, but really informed by special interest groups and hence um, subject to takeover by money. And one of the ways in which I think populations can choose the top of the public health system more directly is to have a system of citizen juries. So we should think of 
the citizen jury to set up the equivalent of appointing someone like Fauci or Birch in the United States or whoever the equivalents are in Canada. So um, the director of every hospital could then be appointed by a particular citizen jury. So you would then have 12 or 20 random Canadians and they would get together for a couple of weeks and they could themselves decide now what do we want in a director of a large public hospital? What do we, what do we want as the director of national media or national radio or of the Department of Health or of a Health Institute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, including judges. And so I favor a system in which, as it were, appointing the top layer of our institution becomes the job of citizen juries and the whole system of citizen juries, including the spares, including, well, what if somebody goes on a holiday still? Basically, that, that whole appointment layer starts to be the job of citizen juries and hence directly the citizenry. And that takes it away from money. It takes it away from elected politicians. So they get their own mandates, this top. Uh, and because they get chosen by the population, um, they're much more likely to do the bidding of the population to become our helpers inside this huge system. That's one of my favorite solutions to a lot of the problems that we have, not just in the health system, but really. Should have known I was going to cut us off there. Um, so we were talking about citizen juries. Um, so is that is that feasible? Do you think that couldn't also be um, captured? So maybe a method like you randomly are picking people across the nation to appoint these key positions, like director of the CDC, director of the NIH, who essentially may have had more power than almost the president in some cases making these decisions, masking, um, these forced injections, um, and sort of just dictating without really providing any evidence to some extent to the public. So is that a feasible method to sort of pull people and then present them like maybe 10 options to choose from for a key position like that? Um, I, I don't I, know. I, I think it's very feasible. It's much harder to capture, right? But it of course, depends how you set it up and crucially, you should not pre-cook for this jury, look, these are the people you can choose from, because that would be a mistake. Then you basically get all the corruption back in the choice of the 10. No, you, you should leave it to them. Right? You should leave it to the citizen jury and they can be administratively helped by uh, people like the equivalent of the electoral council in various places, right? Because you, you've got to randomly draw from the Canadian population. You've got to get people together in a room uh, and you've got to give them an email address and a website whereby applicants can find, okay, what does this jury want for this position? Um, now consider how hard it is to corrupt a group like that, right? They're unknown right up until the moment that they're random, uh, randomly found. And so you, you can't corrupt them before then. All they've got is a couple of weeks to basically set this up and it would be known that this position is in coming up. So anybody who sort of wants it will be waiting to see, okay, what am I going to apply for? And then also there are many jury members, right? There's not one, there's not one decider. No, it's like 12 to 20. And so you'd have to sort of get to them. You'd then have to buy them out or threaten them in some way. So you'd have to be right inside this system. And don't forget that we're now looking at a system that would be appointing hundreds of people every year, right? So not just the head of the CDC, but also the top directors within the CDC or various departments, right? And the top of lots of things uh, that would hang off the CDC, like the hospitals, 
like uh, the state health system. And so to a certain extent, you're talking about a whole layer. So the number of jury members in the country that are busy every year with deciding somebody important would be thousands. That's rather a lot of people to corrupt and you gotta get to them very quickly. And you gotta give them rather a lot. And note also what, what a huge risk you're then running as a corrupter, right? Because this can be outed uh, and the system can react. So it, it is precisely as it were a, a small individual target that this system is, but of course a huge benefit to the public as a whole because you're, you're then cutting the umbilical cord uh, that there now is between big business, big interests, big politicians, on the top of all these semi-state institutions. So just to touch a little bit on that corruption um, and what we sort of mentioned earlier, I think if it was incompetence, you'd sort of get random decisions, um, maybe not necessarily all governments making this lockdown choice. It would be, okay, we think lockdown, we don't think lockdown, we think somewhere in between, and just sort of like a spectrum of choices and wherever the incompetence falls, then it's, it's sort of random. But in my mind, at least this, or what we said earlier, this is the direct inverse of what is the proper response with a lockdown. And so that seems to me to be of a level of malevolence or that someone, someone down the line bought out or some, some monkey business is going on for everyone to be making this mm -hmm. level of a decision. Um, as we said, all these costs that come with it. And so one thing I want to bring up is whenever sort of these things come up, I mean, the new Pfizer documents come out after being court ordered. And now all of a sudden we have World War III in the Ukraine, or all of a sudden now we have monkeypox, or all of a sudden it's the pandemic of the unvaccinated and just sort of these like talking lines that really don't make much sense or no one really believed in them until the media told them to believe in them just suddenly arise. So what can we do about this? Because I, I know a lot of people just get their information directly from the media and, and almost that's, that's their truth. So can we recon, reconcile this or is everyone just programmed by the media? Um, I think those are excellent questions, but of course you, you make a lot of different points there. Right? So to unpack that a little bit, um, now, incompetence can, of course, easily translate into following a group without reflecting yourself. So a whole group of incompetent people doesn't have to go incompetent in different directions. They all are incompetent in different ways, but following the group is almost their solution to their incompetence. They don't know what they're doing, so there's safety in numbers, and they're just galloping behind what seems sensible and what others have done, because that's a safe thing in a political environment. You know, they, they all go down together or they don't go down at all. Um, and so the notion that the initial lockdowns were largely incompetence, uh, and incompetence not just of the politicians and of the health advisors, and the health advisors, they, they only switched at the last moment. You know, within the UK and the Netherlands, they were still in February saying, no, don't do a lockdown. All our training tells us that that's bonkers. Uh, they switched when it was clear to them that the politicians were going to do it anyway. And so that they felt the harsh choice between either losing their position in the world of advisory or basically keeping very quiet or convincing themselves that something that their entire training and past had told them was one thing was the other thing. So it, incompetence and this kind of bargain with power um, went together, basically. But very, very quickly, I think you then got opportunism. You then got groups of people discovering to their own amazement, oh, I can make money out of this. 
Um, and you see a lot of evidence for that discovery. You, for instance, see it in the share price of big tech, which went down something like 30 to 40% to, together with the rest. Uh, but they, unlike some of the industrial stocks, rose tremendously when they discovered, oh, two weeks is turning into two years, and this is going to be great for us. Um, and so the, you know, the, the market discovered who the winners and the losers were. And of course, the, those people winning uh, accentuated that, and uh, the, the halls of power were swarming with uh, bullshitters and opportunists uh, selling all sorts of stuff, you know, all sorts of uh, friends of the president came in with their plans to supply the entire country with masks or with um, uh, uh, hand sanitizer or whatever it was, right? Uh, everybody had suddenly something to sell, and that included in science. Now, uh, then, yeah, you know, the, the media didn't want to know its own culpability. Many governments set up a kind of ministry of propaganda. Uh, whether or not that was, as it were, to help the population make the right choice, or whether or not they thought, oh, this is the way I can retain in power, almost doesn't matter. It turned into the latter anyway, very quickly. So we know this is true in the UK, we know this is true in the Netherlands, we know this is true uh, in large parts of the US as well, that there was a kind of ministry of propaganda in which censorship started to be coordinated between big tech and parts of the government. Um, and now, yeah, we're, we're in this dire situation whereby lots of the mainstream media have become totally untrustworthy, is against any real science, uh, and is running away from culpability as much as possible. Um, but of course, those who, are, who have less to lose uh, and more to regain, as it were, are, are, are seeing sense more and more, at least in the US. Um, now, the way forward, how can we get a better media? That is a tough one. I mean, lots of people think, look, the, the way to get better media is to go for fringe media until it grows. And there's a lot of growing fringe media. Uh, but they, of course, will in the long run get under the same pressures, which is that there's rather a lot of money to be made for a media to sell out uh, its customers, to sell it to um, big business. Because effectively, our attention is worth more than uh, our, as it were, uh, our advertising revenue for media. So selling us is as it were, the logical business model now for media. Um, and so we have to think deeper than that when it comes to the production of good media. And my favorite solution to that is, like with citizen juries, to see this as part of what citizens should do and take up. Citizens should get involved in the production of news and in the vetting of news. Um, one can see that sort of being implemented in various ways. One way is to have a kind of a, a national service at a certain moment, whereby everybody's going to spend a few months of their life being journalists. They've got to chase stories. They've got to vet them. And they've got to give all kinds of quality signals to the existing stories of those like them around them. Uh, one can also see other mechanisms whereby it's the constant duty of everybody every week to, as it were, judge a couple of articles coming their way from a whole network of citizen journalists. Uh, and one can think of other things. I, I basically think that this, this should be the realm of well-thinking geeks who, who can see, as it were, a whole ecosystem uh, that uh, is highly technical, um, that galvanizes the joint information and the joint knowledge of lots of people together into a whole system of news production and news vetting by citizens. This does not yet exist. There are some examples. You know, uh, Student news used to be a little bit like this. Local news used to be a little bit like this. But I think that's how we've got to think. We, we've got to think innovatively in the future as to, yeah, how does a citizenry pick up the production and vetting of news? So I'll give you an example of 
what I would think would be a massive story that the mainstream media just glossed over. Um, so I'm not sure how much you've paid attention to the, the Pfizer clinical trial data and all of the monkey business that sort of surrounds it. Um, but just to explain for the listeners, um, Brooke Jackson, so she worked for Ventiva, sort of this research group that conducted Pfizer's clinical trials. Um, she brought forward a, a bunch of complaints, some of which were um, patients were unblinded, the doctors knew whether someone got a placebo or a vaccine, so it changes the testing, whether they're gonna test someone who's been vaccinated. Um, they weren't following up on adverse events. They're sort of not available to report any of these adverse events and a whole host of other things, which people can go read in the British Medical Journal. Um, but as of recently, this, this has become a lawsuit, sort of Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer because of this fraud. And um, I was listening to the lawyer speak on this. And what he was saying is that Pfizer is going for a motion to dismiss because essentially what they're saying is that it doesn't matter if fraud was committed at all because the government knew about it anyways. So to me, that's just um, incomplete against the public's interest, but it's not in the mainstream media at all. So, I mean, I guess the, the mainstream media is not for the public's interest. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's nonsense. Well, clearly, well, clearly it is not, but I mean, media is a business, so it's there for money. And the main way that media makes money is now selling it to the public. Right? That is the business model now of media. They sell propaganda to deep pockets. Uh, and that has to do with the huge inequalities. You know, it's because so much wealth is concentrated among so few people that the, the, the best way to make money as a big media outlet is to sell the information space you have towards large groups of the population, towards the few who are rich. That is just a smart thing to do if you're media. But wouldn't you say um, that this is a big enough story that you could sell it? Like if you were just selling fear, this would you be- could. You, 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 you could, sure. But you know, Pfizer can pay even better, right? Uh, and of course, the many shareholders of Pfizer. But uh, I think the thing to say about the, the Pfizer staff is that, yes, you know, it's, it's been egregious what's come out now. You should read what Naomi Wolf says about it. She's absolutely rabid about, you know, all the shenanigans that Pfizer and some of the other companies have gotten into, including taking out all kinds of propaganda ads uh, against competing medical um, interventions or early treatments, right? So they were also, as it were, directly impeding. Um, uh, the uh, yeah, uh, as it were, the, the the things which would have cost them, um, you know, the the claimed supposed health benefits of their own vaccine because it wouldn't have been necessary because of other treatments, uh, and that is something for which they can, of course, also be taken to court. But I I think the thing to say that this is a matter of political will, right? If the public mood truly switches, and the public becomes convinced, oh my God, you know, Pfizer really really screwed us over then don't worry, the politicians and the courts will find a way to go after Pfizer and find a, go, find, a way to go after, find a way to go after Pfizer in a huge way. You know, I really would not want to be a director of Pfizer then because I'm not sure I'd survive. Right? I think we are looking at that level of anger there. Um, and they'll make it up. Uh, and so even though, you know, yes, uh, Pfizer was smart enough to get the governments to give it a total guarantee, I think that'll count for nothing. It'll be, yes, that guarantee was given under imperfect information, and now we found out that uh, politicians uh, will find a reason to go after Pfizer if the public mood decisively switches. Uh, that also means something else. 
Pfizer is now deeply embedded and deeply invested in this story that they did the right thing. And they will spend billions, I think, in order to prevent that, that from flipping. So there's another few billion dollars um, with a very clear propaganda goal. Now, this podcast is what? 300 viewers uh, who pay you nothing, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it, it just doesn't compare to that kind of firepower. So that's the reality in which you live, right? And, and you sort of have to, yeah, be aware of that. And, and so make alliances with, you know, 3,000 other Brendans and other groups like that throughout the world, um, because it, it will need that kind of organization for voices that couldn't be heard. So I think we could really just boil it down to a battle of getting information out there, because this information is, is clear. It, it's not a, the level of a conspiracy when it's a, a real lawsuit, and that's what Pfizer is saying, um, but it's just whether people are ever going to see that information. So it's more so can we overcome social media, I guess, the mainstream news? What are your thoughts? Well, it's much deeper than that, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't get hung up on this particular piece of information. I mean, if, if, even if you manage to you know, have deep pockets and get this piece of information to everybody in the world, the counter move is to have 30 other pieces of information on other manufacturers and Pfizer, and some are sort of you know, the most fantastical nonsense possible. So they'll just flood the zone with shit in order to dilute the value of that particular message. It's also just a battle of money at that moment. But in terms of what your organization is about, I would think much wider and deeper than that, you know, that we're, we're now looking at a whole reform trajectory. It may take decades. You know, this is, this is a long run thing and it's not solved by one particular battle or one particular thing. There's, there's now other questions to be asked, you know, do, do you really want to remain living in Canada if this is what the culture is going to be for a while? You know, there, there are sort of deep questions on the individual and group level as to what, what is the nature of the beast that you're now up against and what do you want to do about it? So I think that's a good point to sort of start to wrap up. Um, what, what advice would you have to people? Uh, I know some people are maybe regretting getting injected. They don't know what's going to happen to them. Other people are scared of maybe another lockdown if they're not injected and don't really know whether they can attend school, whether they could take a government job, et cetera, et cetera. So generically speaking, I guess, what, what type of advice would you have for people um, going forward? Um, in Canada, you mean? Yeah. Um, well, if I had a young family in Canada, I would get out of Canada. I mean, I, I would literally get out. I would give it up as a bad job. That's what I would do. But then I, that means I, I would choose for my family. You know, I, I would go to a, a country or a, a part of the US or somewhere which, which would be more enlightened. I'd basically just get out, uh, you know, leave the rest of their devices. Uh, but if one is not prepared to do that, I think the first advice is to look close and organize close. And organize close on the good things of life. You know, party, uh, hug. Um, organize education together, uh, some sort of embryonic health services, uh, information systems, as you're doing, basically form a society and form a network society with others, right? Uh, and start to really take organization seriously. I mean, organizations as yourself in combination with others should bring out things like uh, advice where to shop, who not to shop with, you know, mobilize the consumer power of that movement. 
um, do the same thing with books, you know, uh, sort of read up on cloud dynamics and other things. Um, come together for jamborees, exchange information, uh, and sort of, you know, set up dating websites within the movement, that sort of thing, you know, basically organize yourself. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I love your work. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Great stuff. And you too. Well done for pushing all this. And, and I wish all you very much the best of luck. And yeah, keep it up. Take care.